0: Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. In the spirit of Hug a Climate Change Scientist Day, June 12th, we recorded some climate change stories. So from an ingenious way of storing carbon in our atmosphere, to checking up on how the Kyoto Protocols managed to help our planet, We also find out about floods and if they're becoming more frequent and what could be causing that to happen. From rivers in Europe, including the Seine flooding and putting great artworks at risks and damaging countless of homes and lives across continental Europe. To the great tropical low that was depressed over the eastern seaboard of Australia. The eastern seaboard low that brought floods to pretty much everywhere from Queensland right down to Tasmania on the Australian eastern seaboard. It hasn't been a good week for floods. In fact, we've seen a whole lot of floods, which is not good news for those of us who don't like being several feet underwater. But even though it seems like these floods are becoming increasingly more common, partly that the increased frequency of these once-in-a-hundred-year floods can be tied back to climate change. But it needs to be stressed that individual events alone cannot be tied to climate change specifically. But a broader pattern or trend can. However... There are other climate impacts and changes at work here, notably the shift between the El Nino and La Nina patterns that cycle back and forth. Basically, this is to do with uh, the ocean temperatures and the current flows in the Pacific Ocean. And depending on how they alternate from cool to hot, hot to cool, can lead to a variety of change in rainfall frequency in both Americas, North and South, and Asia and Australia in particular. And one study recently performed by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the United States, or NOAA, which is a great name for anyone who's re- doing anything relating to floods, uh, found that in a study from May 2015 to April 2016, the f- there was a massive increase of nuisance tidal flooding in many U.S. cities. So this is different to rainfall-related flooding, this is more tidal flooding, um, and this happened in, in a lot of parts of the United States in the southeastern areas in particular those in the Gulf Coast and this was to do with both the El Nino system and the rising sea levels so as sea levels increases it sort of lowers the base point so you know as you might hear the news talking about a 0.5 meter um, sea level rise and you say well that's not that scary but what that means is that then the peaks that occur and any of these tidal peaks are now much much higher uh and so it's just shifting the base level the 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 base point from the flood for the flood potential and in fact in in that uh a 90 day period uh basically last year there was a point in time in the united states where cities such as Charleston in South Carolina, Port Isabel, Texas, Mayport in Virginia, Key West in Florida, Fernando <laughs> Beach, all these, and then Norfolk, Virginia, Baltimore, Maryland, San Francisco and La Jolla in California, they all saw floods in pretty much in that tightly bound period. And okay, this report is about studying nuisance flooding, uh, but it shows that these, these very high frequency of these floods uh, can be directly tied back to the El Nino and La Nina shift pattern. Now, fortunately, based on this and 50 years' worth of data from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, they are able to actually make more predictions about where the most likely areas are in the United States where to flood, especially as we go from El Nino to La Nina and then back again. And it's very interesting because the important part about all of this is that the more that the sea levels rise, the greater the frequency and the greater the potential damage from any of these floods so it's not just rainfall related floods we have to worry about tidal or oceanic based floods can be a big deal and will continue to be increasing frequency as the years goes on as climate change remains underdressed <laughs> Depending on how old you are, you may remember the great fanfare that was heralded with the signing of the Kyoto Protocol. Now, it took a lot of countries many years to actually get fully on board of it. Unfortunately, Australia was one of those that was a bit of a laggard in that fact. But out of the 36 countries that committed to the Kyoto Protocol on climate change, which was signed in 1997, uh, and which set targets for 15 years ahead, so hey, 2016. What we actually have seen now that we've reached the end of the Kyoto target, period, we can see how well countries, these 36 that are signatories, have actually managed to achieve their their goals. And the Kyoto Protocols were actually pretty modest. They only involved an economic cost of about 0.1% of the GDP for the European Union, an even lower fraction compared to Japan or the United States. Now, the United States never actually fully signed on board for the Kyoto Protocol, neither did Canada. Um, but the rest all continued and Kyoto came into force like f- fully by 2005. So now that we've finished this big agreement period, what actually happened? What did we achieve? And that's an important part. We set targets, but then how did we go on actually achieving them? So what the findings, which have been published in the Climate Policy Journal, have shown is that so those that signed up to the Kyoto Protocol uh, actually managed to greatly reduce their gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalent per year by an additional 2.4 gigatons of carbon each year which more than they had to which is a great sign so not only do we have these targets in place we actually exceeded that we not exceeded them but did even better we reduced much more than or saved emissions of carbon to much higher level than was set out in the targets which is great Because a lot of the time you hear about all these agreements and you hear about all these things that can be done to tackle climate change and you're never really sure if, well, did we actually achieve it? Does it make a difference? Are we actually helping the planet with all this talk and agreements that we sign? And the result from the Kyoto Protocol is that the Kyoto Protocols haven't failed. The The 36 countries that complied fully complied and did even more than they were expected to, which is great news. Now, there's been other accords since then, and most recently, the Paris Agreement. And some countries have entered into their own separate agreements, separate to their full massive international processes, such as the agreement between the United States and China, which was recently signed about three or four years ago, which is another big climate change tackling uh, agreement to reduce pollutions and other impacts. So it shows that although it may just seem like politicians talking a lot and not much happening and a bunch of hot air, we actually are making some progress on climate change. When it comes to climate change a lot of the discussion around that is about changing our behaviours in order to reduce our impact and renewable energy has done a great thing for us by giving us less damaging electricity but at the same time we still grow accustomed to lots of things that require electric power in our everyday lives for entertainment, for living, for health and you name it we need electricity for it and renewable power is great at helping with that but we're always on the hunt for additional sources of renewable power. That's where one team of international scientists have come up with an ingenious way to reduce or even remove some anthropogenic carbon dioxide emissions from the atmosphere and make something out of it. So this is work that's published in the journal Science by a bunch of researchers, including people from Columbia University, the University of Iceland, the University of Toulouse and Reykjavik Energy as well as researchers at the University of Southampton. So it's a really international collaborative team. And what they've done is carbon sequestration, which is the technical name for taking greenhouse gas carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and then permanently and rapidly locking it away from the atmosphere. So taking it away from the atmosphere where it's doing damage and putting it and stowing it somewhere safely away. Now, there's some carbon sequestration projects we've talked about before that turn it into a gas that we can burn and get more energy out of and recover, which is really cool. But this process injects it into the volcanic bedrock in Iceland. Then the CO2 reacts with the surrounding rock, forming environmentally benign minerals. So why invent a really complicated and difficult process when you could make use of an already powerful system that's already in place, volcanoes. So carbon capture and storage, CCS, in general is done with tanks and other processes where you have a whole bunch of stuff that needs to take place in order to get the carbon out of the atmosphere and put it in the ground somewhere safe. But the problem is that that COT may leak out or go into voids in the ground and spread out. And therefore it's not necessarily the safest way of doing it. But it does make a lot of use of abandoned oil and gas reservoirs by pumping the CO2 into it, these what have been already drilled and sucked out, and uh, trapping it down in there. But they are susceptible to leakage. So mineralisation, turning the CO2 back into a mineral or rock, is a pretty ingenious way to permanently dispose of the CO2. And now, previously, scientists thought that this would take hundreds, if not thousands of years to actually happen, and therefore really isn't viable. But the study... Has demonstrated that they can do it in about two years which is a huge difference in time scale and means that it's actually achievable so 95 to 98 percent of the injected co2 was actually mineralized turned into rock over the period of less than two years which is amazingly fast considering we're talking geological scales here which measures things usually in the hundreds or millions of years so how did they do it well the gas was injected into a deep well, a deep borehole that they dug at a study site in Iceland. Now, Iceland is predominantly volcanoes, which you may remember from the time that the entire world's airplane system was shut down by a peskily, annoyingly complicated name, volcano in Iceland. And the rock there on this island is about 90% basalt, which is a rock rich in elements such as calcium, magnesium, and iron, which are all things we need for the carbon mineralization process. Now, the CO2 that they capture from the atmosphere is dissolved into water and then carried down the well. Once it's that water is put in contact with the target storage rocks, which is about 400 to 800 meters underground, the solution reacts quickly with the surrounding rock and it forms little carbonate minerals. Now, the best part about this is that these carbonate minerals don't leak because they're solid, which is good, and it means it's a permanent and environmentally friendly storage process of CO2. So, the next steps for this carb fix process, which is the name for this method of turning carbon dioxide in the atmosphere into solid mineral form in the ground that's safe to store, is being done obviously in conjunction with Reykjavik Energy. And the plan is to upscale this carb fix solution to actually be put into place at Reykjavik Energy's Helchidi geothermal plant, where up to 5,000 tons of CO2 per year can be captured and stored safely. Now, this is incredible news because the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, which is a name you probably heard flowing around in climate change discussions, said in 2014 that without a really fast and efficient way to do carbon capture and storage, we weren't going to be able to adequately address carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere to really help with global warming. So by putting it in place at the Helshidi power plant, geothermal power plant, we can actually really start to make a big difference on our carbon dioxide production and emissions. So, for example, this, even though it's a geothermal plant, which means that it's one of the most efficient renewable energy sources out there, it still produces about 40,000 tons of CO2 a year. Now, that is about five percent of an equivalent coal-fired power plant. So, it's a, it's really nice and clean, right? It's renewable energy. It's pretty great, but it's still producing some CO2. But if we're shaving off more and more of that with carbon capture and storage right at the same facility, you can almost make that emission of that plant near negligible, which is fantastic news. And not only that, not only can you do it, but previous estimates have said that, oh, even if you could do it, it'd be really expensive, about $130 a tonne, which makes it unviable economically. But this method, it's only $30 a tonne. So not only can it be done at the same place as some of these other plants, such as geothermal plants, but it can also be done cheaply and efficiently, which is all of these things adding up to a win-win solution for everyone involved. Now, there are some things that need to be worked out. We need to keep realistic about it all. Other types of fossil fuel plants may not be able to do it as cheaply, and they do need to have an available source of water for this process, which again is another resource that we need to be mindful of because it is a precious resource. And even another part of this, a separate study being done, not as direct part of this, but found that subterranean microbes seem to be capable of feeding off carbonate minerals, which... Seems all well and good, but what the problem is that they produce methane. Now, whilst everyone gets caught up in CO2, methane is another gas that can do a lot of damage to our our planet and our atmosphere. So we also need to be make sure we're more, not solving one problem but creating another. Now we we thought that these microbes only existed deep under the water, but researchers in California recently found them uh, deep inside wells of this kind of size before. So you got you can't you got to be careful when you apply this type of method. Now, once you've captured and stored all this carbon, there are other things you could do with it as well. Exxon, for example, wants to build fuel cells out of them, so turn CO2 into more energy. Ford is trying to find ways to convert emissions into solid foams to turn into insulation, which is a pretty nifty idea. And in a project in Oman, uh, Le Mans Group is looking to pump emissions into a different kind of rock, Peridotite which may react even more rapidly than turning CO2. So instead of a two-year process, it could be even less. So there's a lot of opportunities out there. It's not all doom and gloom. And carbon capture and storage can be one of the great ways to help make our renewable energy even more efficient. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. We found out about the increasing frequency of flooding in different parts of the world. Plus, we found out about a new way to store carbon in deep geothermal wells. And we found out about our world's progress towards the Kyoto Protocols. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Anatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.